HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet in Three. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at... 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to Be Eaten. I'm your host, Coral Lee. Rachel Loudon has written on it all. Cuisine and Empire was the recipient of the 2014 IACP Best Book in Culinary History, and before that, she wrote A Plea for Culinary Modernism, an essay in praise of fast food. You heard me. Rachel is now writing a book on the grindstone, one of the most, if not the most, primitive tools in history. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. I'm delighted to be here, Coral. So um, I've been opening my episodes with just the general question where you're from and how that's brought you to where you are today. Um, But especially of note is I found in your plea that you uh, kind of self-proclaimed to be part of this generation of trained culinary Luddites. So I was wondering if you could explain what that is and yeah, how that has affected your cooking. A culinary Luddite is somebody who deeply believes that food was much, much better in the past when it was all made by hand. Um, The term comes from English history. The Luddites were a group led by the imaginary, led probably imaginary, Ned Ludd, who broke up agricultural machinery um, because they wanted to go back to a time when farming was done by hand. So culinary Luddism has really been the dominant theme 
in um, American thinking about food um, among the kind of media and foodies for about the last ooh, 20 or 30 years. And so uh, where, just to back up a little bit, uh, where are you from locationally? Um, and yeah, what brought you to become a food historian? Uh, well, I was born and raised in England. I grew up on a large working farm um, with two parents who were uh, very interested in both growing and eating food. Um, and I... Uh, Left the farm, girls did not farm. I became uh, a university professor in history and philosophy of science, and that was my first career. Um, then I ended up in Hawaii at the University of Hawaii, where I discovered some of the most amazing food I had ever encountered. And so I began writing about food in my spare time, it turned out to be so interesting that I uh, shifted over to writing about food full-time, and that's been my second career. So in enticing my non-foodie uh, friends to listen to this episode, because I've been very, very excited about having you on my show for a while now, I've been kind of introducing Cuisine and Empire, or you, the um, author, as like Guns, Germs, and Steel, or Jared Diamond, but food. And I realized that comparison has been made multiple times before, and on, the, on my way here I found that out. So can you talk about um, this kind of new and kind of controversial stance that the agricultural revolution is actually not a positive and that I guess you could just expand on the culinary leadism. Um, yes. Um, actually, it was Guns, Germs and Steel that made me uh, write a world food history because oh, perfect. I think food is something we make, not something we grow. And if you look at Jared Diamond's uh, Guns, Germs and Steel, which is a great book, it's all about growing the raw materials for food, but he doesn't say anything about how we turn carcasses and um, harvested plants into things we actually put into our mouth. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you also asked about the agricultural revolution. Yes. I, I want to shift the emphasis away from the agricultural revolution and it's all to do with this business of food being something we make. Um, people had to, the agricultural revolution um, at its core was um, growing um, grains, particularly uh, barley, wheat, rice, maize, uh, um, for uh, human consumption because those grains formed most of the diet of most humans from that time on. But you see, the trouble is that you can't actually eat rice or wheat or maize. They're covered in tough outside skins, and they are very small, very hard, and very indigestible. If you eat a handful of uh, raw wheat, um, even if you've husked it, it's going to pass through your system and you're going to find you've got lots of little grains of wheat um, coming out the other end. Um, so, um, in order to... Nobody, I don't think, would have dreamt of growing these things unless they knew how to turn them into food. 
And so I want to say that the really important shift is not the agricultural revolution, but the shift to eating grains. And I think that occurred or began occurring many thousand years before people actually began farming grains because that is the kind of logic of, you know, you learn how to make these into food and then gradually you find you're using more and more of them and so it makes sense to uh, grow them. Mm -hmm. And we'll fast forward um, thousands and thousands of years. You talk about learning to cook from Richard Olney and Paula Wolfer, um, even Sever. And today we look to people like Michael Pollan and Alice Waters and how they are showing us that there's this kind of luxurious um, way of spending your afternoon cooking, you know, this beautiful meal for your family instead of spending it in an office or just there's this idealization, right, of, of devoting your time to making your food as opposed to just buying your food. And can you talk a bit about why that's idealistic and what your stance is on that? Yeah, well, we're really, really lucky because basically what we call cooking nowadays in a modern kitchen is the final assembly of um, ingredients. I mean, we might say, oh, I'm going to go and bake a cake from scratch. But what are we taking? We're taking flour, we're taking sugar, we're taking um, butter, um, and we're taking some flavorings. Now, all the hard work to turn the wheat into flour, to turn the sugar cane or the sugar beet into sugar, to turn um, liquid milk into uh, butter has already been done. Um, in the past, if you had wanted to make a cake, you would have had to start by grinding the flour and then um, purifying sugar and churning the butter. And so most of the work that most of the people did for cooking in the past was not the really fun stuff like making a cake. It was the really very hard, demanding work of grinding and churning and beating and doing all the very laborious things you need to do to make food. Mm -hmm. And so there's also this um, kind of global trend or interest in eating locally, um, but you have this awesome quote in A Plea, which is, Local food was greeted with about as much or as much enthusiasm as fresh and natural. Local foods were the lot of the poor who can neither escape the tyranny of local climate and biology nor the monotonous, often precarious diet afforded. And in a previous episode, um, I spoke with this ex-winemaker about the history of terroir and how it had originally been a pejorative term. And that um, today, uh, working at an upstate wine, wine shop, he found that people were more willing to pay for subpar wines that were grown locally than wines that are imported. So can you talk a bit about this, yeah, this weird paradox? Yes, well, I mean, when I'm thinking about local, I always think of three kinds of local. Uh, one is what is... Uh, biologically local. Now, if we depended on what was biologically local, we'd all be starving because uh, um, most of the plants and even the animals we eat were originally confined to very small areas. So that it's only by moving plants and animals around the globe, which has been going on for at least 
20,000 years um, that we are able to have a varied diet. So that's the agricultural local. And then there's the cultural local, kind of just what's happened on this spot in the earth that makes the particular mix of uh, people and foods we have here, the people who came to New York, the people who came to Hawaii. And then when people are talking about local, they're normally talking about agriculturally local, things that are grown nearby. Um, I don't think there's any special virtue for most foods in being grown nearby. Uh, there are exceptions. Um, fruit, for example. I mean, I will go to the farmer's market to get a local peach because peaches don't travel very well. They have short season and, you know, the peaches grown down the road from where I live in Texas are fantastic. And so that's worth paying for the local. But whether it's grains or sugar or wine that you mention, these are all things that um, either keep well or are transformed into uh, food or drink that keeps well, like wine. So there's, enjoy whatever it is from wherever it comes from. Um, no special virtue in local. Mm-hmm. I, I think you brought up this really interesting point, which is the kind of cultural uh, context or the cultural slant of this, which is um, what it what does consuming regional foods do in helping us construct or reify our our identity? Yeah, that's why I really want to push the culturally local line because um, I mentioned that I got interested in food in Hawaii and there's a case where um, people really used the culturally local food to uh, create identity. When people hear of Hawaii, they think of native Hawaiians. But in fact, when Hawaii became part of the United States in the late 1950s, most of the people there were Asian. They had come from China and Japan and Korea and the Philippines to work on the plantations as indentured laborers in the 19th century. And that was a very, very hard um, move for them. It wasn't... um, Uh, They were escaping often great poverty or um, political unrest in their home country. When it came to vote for statehood, they voted as a bloc. And they became, um, they took over essentially the state from the former plantation managers and owners. And they looked at themselves and they said, well, who are we? And they said, we are local. We are local people. We were born and bred in uh, Hawaii. And our food is local food because it is a mixture of Chinese and Japanese and Korean and Filipino and some others like Portuguese and, and Anglo and what have you. And we are going to celebrate local food. And so every opening of the legislature began with a potluck um, serving local food that people bought. This um, funny, in some senses, mix of foods from across Asia. And 
that's what so interested me about Hawaii was the way these people who had been, you know, um, poor and largely oppressed were able to take uh, food and use it as a way to say, my goodness, we've really accomplished something. We are now um, full American citizens. We are running the state. We are doing a great job. Yeah, and on that same vein, um, you could you define the word cuisine, especially um, in as it relates to your title in, in the big world history book, um, and also how the term fusion cuisine is kind of useless and why it still holds currency today? Oh, my goodness, that's a whole lot of things. <laughs> I, I define cuisine simply as a style of cooking. Now, I know there's one interpretation of cuisine that is a kind of snobbish one. Well, some foods are cuisines because they're fancy and other foods are just food. Um, but when I was writing my world history, I kept saying to myself, if I'm writing a history of food, what am I writing a history of? Am I writing a history of farming? Am I writing a history of dining? Am I writing a history of French food, English food, Chinese food, um, you know, Tibetan food, what have you? And what I realized was I was writing a history of styles of cooking which were not confined to nations, they were not confined to empires, um, and they spread or moved all around the world. And I needed a word for this. And there is no good word in English for style of cooking. But in French and Spanish and Italian, take Spanish, for example, because it's the one I know the best, cocina means both a style of cooking and the kitchen. It's the same word as cuisine in, it, in, in its roots. So I picked up cuisine, which was already in English, just simply to have a word for a style of cooking. But it doesn't imply in the least that certain styles of cooking are better than others. And I'm, I'm completely... Um, I, I don't want to make that kind of judgment. Yeah. So, um, and also, uh, my the other and my the other part of my question was then why do we still kind of look down on quote unquote fusion cuisine today, and why do we even call f- certain restaurants fusion? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, quit. Certain. Uh, I think cuisines are shaped by ideas. Um, basically, that came to me in Hawaii because it was very clear there that people who came out of Buddhist traditions had different cuisines from people who came out of Christian traditions um, who had different cuisines from people who came out of kind of older religious traditions like the Hawaiian one. Um, so, um, but Cuisines are never isolated. They're always changing um, slowly. They're absorbing new things. Um, we don't really have a good term. I mean, most of what people call fusion cuisine is not actually fusion at all. Um, usually it means that people say, oh my goodness, I could try putting soy sauce in a salad dress, a sort of normal European salad dressing, which is just mixing in a new ingredient. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is not really. I mean, if you want to talk about cuisines coming together, then I think you've got to think about much more fundamental things about cultures and techniques, not just ingredients. Don't know if that makes any sense. No, definitely. Um, I ask because on this show we ask a lot. Um, you know, is this authentic? Is it okay to do this? Um, is it not? Who gets to say what? And um, I've realized that it's very much not a black and white conversation. But why do we still have this kind of persisting guilt at enjoying fusion cuisine? Or why do we kind of seek it as a badge of honor that, you know, you found the best, most authentic taco restaurant or et cetera, et cetera? Several things there. I mean, one is the appropriation issue um, because um, not all groups are created equal um, uh, in in terms of their power. And um, so I think there really is a justifiable sensitivity to uh, taking... Um, parts of or bits of cuisine of a less powerful group and um, being able to make a profit out of it, which is not not accessible um, to the people from whom you have taken this ingredient or idea or something. So I think there has to be care and respect. Um, you had a second part of the question, though. Remind me what that was. Right, and why do we have this guilt at save, then savoring said inauthentic cuisine? Yes, I, I mean, I, I think, for me, authenticity is not to do with what's out there in the world. Um, so when people ask me, you know, what is authentic Mexican cuisine? What I see it, them asking is not really something about Mexico, but something about themselves. Um, they want to feel, and it's an understandable feeling, um, that they are getting something um, that is real or genuine, um, that they have reason to believe um, represents or really is what they think they're getting. But the trouble is, because it's their idea, I mean, say, take there are the images of Mexico here, but one of the images of Mexico is that it's, you know, full of um, small farmers who wear colorful native dress and who make the real cuisine of Mexico. And so people go to Mexico and they want to get the real cuisine made by women in villages. And then they get uncomfortable because, in fact, Mexico is an urban modern country and most people buy their food in in Walmart. Yeah. Um, so, go ahead. Yeah, so... I was just going to bring this back to a plea where you wrote about how um, even in the 5th century, French princes were drinking Greek wines and Greeks were copying Persian sauces and Romans were hiring Greek cooks. So it's like 
it was like also a way of showing uh, kind of classicism or I mean kind of like a economic flex or even a show of taste and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how we use food or even images of food on social media in a very similar way, which is not unrelated to what we're talking about with Mexico as well. Um, yes, definitely. I mean, the uh, uh, and people have written about this. Um, uh, Krishnan Dure, who you probably know in New York, has mm-hmm. made a great deal of the fact that um, there is a strong link between the perceived um, political and economic uh, strength of a country and the price that people can ch- charge for its food in restaurants. Um, and it's certainly true throughout history that people are more likely to adopt the food of um the powerful than the food of people who lack power. I mean, to go back to Hawaii for a second, one reason that I found local food so interesting was that people who came from the mainland Hawaii used to laugh at it because, you know, oh, well, this isn't proper, this isn't authentic. And the local people said, Oh, yes, but it is. I mean, this is our food. This is what we eat. And, you know, we are now on an equal footing with you because we run this state. And so there was a whole conversation going on about, um, really about food and power and along with the uh, fusion and authenticity aspects. I'm speaking with Rachel Loudon on Foods Fast and Slow, Authentic and Inauthentic Cuisines, and we'll be back right after a short break. One Hundred Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. 100 Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to 12-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten. I'm your host, Coralie, and I'm speaking with Rachel Loudon. So before we were talking about authentic versus inauthentic foods, we were talking about the slow food movement. Um, And now you're researching the image of the grindstone, which kind of seems to be like this huge pivot from um, what you ask for at the end of a plea for culinary modernism, which is a demand for higher quality industrialized foods. So could you... Uh, kind of explain what your proposed solution uh, for the future of industrialized food is and um, what piqued this pivot. Um, yes. Uh, let's go back 
to the statement I made right at the beginning, um, we make food, we don't grow it. Um, making food requires lots of energy. And the, the reason why we can enjoy cooking so much is that now we have all kinds of energy, essentially from fossil fuels in the kitchen and in the factory, so that all we have to do is the last little final stages. Um, so I'm all for um, industrialized food. And the re one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I want to write a book about the grindstone is that when I went to Mexico, I discovered that there um, in the villages, it's changed now, but in the villages when I went there in the early 1990s, um, many women were still spending five hours a day on their knees grinding to prepare the maize for the family. Now, um, we've discovered that the only people who have such strong upper body strength as that in the modern world are um, competition rowers, the only women this is, competition rowers who train for five hours a day. So you've really got to be strong to do this. And you've also got, I mean, that's the end of your life. Uh, when you reach, when it's changed, but when you reach puberty, um, you are handed the grindstone. And from then on, for five hours a day, six days a week, you are going to be grinding, whether you are menstruating, sick, pregnant, nursing. Now that, I mean, I'm... I really want to bring that out because that's the history of much of the human, much of female history throughout most uh, for the human race. And I think whenever we're romantic about the past of food, it's important to remember that. Definitely. And your forthcoming book is provocatively titled Woman, Stone and Food. Uh, do you tend that title to be seen as processionally or as, as the three to be synonymous with each other? Uh, well, I'll have to see if the publisher uh, <laughs> wants to go with that title because they usually have the final say on titles for books. But mm -hmm. yes, I mean, I'm, men never ground. Only if they were prisoners or something. Um, in the Christian Bible, there's, in the Old Testament, there's a story about Samson who was captured and his eyes were put out and then he was made to grind. But that is the ultimate shame for a man. So it's women who are doing this heavy work. And when going back to the agricultural revolution that we were talking about, and people talk about how hard it was for farmers and what, you know, how uh, compared to hunting and gathering, farming was hard work. Well, yes, it was. But, you know, farming has its seasons, whereas grinding goes on day after day after day after day all year long. So it's woman's work. It's related to the stone, you're doing it on the stone, and that's what makes food because something like 80 or 90% of your calories are probably coming from the grains that are ground on the grindstone. Now, if you live in an area where there's rice, you don't have to grind so much, but you have to pound to get husk off. So 
you've got to work in some parallel way, physical, physical labor. Why is it that uh, women were seen as the sole masters of the grindstone? Good question. Um, I guess to answer that, you really have to, you know, tell the whole history of gender relations. Um, and uh, I, I'm just saying that's the way it was. Mm -hmm. um, so you talked about how the grindstone um, stopped being used in Mexico in the in the late 90s, you said? Uh, yes, it began. I mean, in the trouble for Mexico in much of the world, people moved to not a simple back and forth grindstone, but a rotary grindstone where one stone rotates on top of the other. Um, all round about uh, 100 AD. But the trouble with maize is that you get better food if you soak maize in an alkaline solution before you prepare it. If you soak maize in an alkaline solution and try to grind it on a rotary grindstone, the thing gums up. It can't handle the wet as opposed to the dry grain. So um, it wasn't that Mexico was backward or anything. In fact, the people who ground maize on rotary grindstones, as in the American South or the um, or Italy or Romania, um, suffered terribly from deficiency diseases because the flour was not as good, not as nutritious if you ground it dry. Um, but it did mean that it took an awfully long time to develop machinery that could deal with this wet, sticky, cooked grain. Um, and that's why it went on so long in Mexico. Um, and so what do they use instead now? Now we've got uh, um, mechanical mills that will do it. Though in some ways they've gone out, it's a complicated story, they often, they often now soak the maize and alkali in the industrialized um, plant and then dry it so that you've got a dry flour, masa harina, um, that you can mix with water. Right. Um, so if we have the culinary Luddite um, kind of devil on our shoulder in transitioning out the grindstone, there's also, is there this any sadness, uh, any loss of cultural practice or social relations um, in phasing it out? And how have, I don't know if you've kept in touch over the times, but um, how have these women kind of reoriented their identity, not having to use the grindstone? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of men used to talk in, about, you know, how Mexican women's identity was bound up with the grindstone. Um, it's certainly true that a tortilla that is made from maize that's ground on a grindstone is better than uh, one that is industrially um, made, at least at the moment. We've still got to improve the industrial process. On the other hand... Um, you know, who really wants to have their identity um, bound up with five hours a day grinding? Um, I, the women I knew, I mean, one of them, um, her mother had ground. She did not grind. Um, she got a job in um, 
one of the factories that had opened in the area I lived in. And the last time I talked with her, which was two or three years ago, she was supervising a team of uh, 16 other women and learning English. And she definitely preferred that to grinding. Mm-hmm. Um, last week, I spoke with this Canadian author about her um, recent study of uh, cloudberry picking in Quebec and how um, there had been this ban on cod fishing and how all these cod fishermen had then had to kind of reestablish their identity as cloudberry pickers, which was um, somewhat troublesome. And so I was wondering, um, you, there's this awesome story that you just told about the woman who got that job at the factory, but how, what are they kind of embracing um, informing their cultural or culinary identity in lieu of the grindstone? Oh, two other things. I mean, one of the things, uh, and in response to you, one of the things we associate with Mexico is lots of crafts and artesania, as it's called there. Um, there was a huge outburst of crafts, of textiles, of pottery, what have you, once the grindstone started going because women have time to do it. And mm-hmm. they use this, these crafts to make money for the family. So that's one of the cultural changes that happened. In terms of um, the cuisine, um, I heard lots of discussions that went along these kinds of lines. Well, my husband doesn't like the store-bought tortillas nearly as much. And so on birthdays or Christmas or special occasions, independent, I might make um, the masa for the tortillas on the grindstone. But I want my children to go to school, and if my children are going to go to school, although the schools are free, they've got to buy their uniforms and buy their books, and they can't go out and earn money so young. So I am going to spend my time earning money instead of working on the grindstone. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful um, ending to our episode and how that it's the choice to prepare food slowly um, is just that. It's choice. It's not being bound to the grindstone. Um, Can you offer a few um, connective thoughts? Because I know um, to people that come across your writing um, initially, they're, they're kind of confused. Like, how can she be in praise of fast food, but also be writing on the grindstone? Can you talk a bit about how they're actually very complementary? Yes, I think they are complementary because um, I think we need to uncover the history. We've got all these histories of farming. We don't have lots of histories of how people actually prepared food and the work that it took. And I think if we're to appreciate why people like uh, these uh, uh, women I talked to in Mexico make the choices they do and made the choices they did um, uh, from time to time in history to go with faster and more efficient methods, then we've got to understand just how hard and laborious it was to make food in the past. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. Um, This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Coralie. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.